Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation, a very inappropriate conversation about a crazy work story, most likely too. And happy Labor Day. As you'll notice, this particular episode has an explicit tag on it, and believe me, the explicit tag is well-earned. You've been warned. When I was running a record store in the mid-1990s, at least a third of my employees were either undergraduates at the local university or very late in high school. One of those high school seniors had a great sense of humor. Let's call him Kyle. It isn't his real name, but it is the name that I called him for the first two weeks of his employment. He was just too nice of a guy to correct me. That's a true story, as are most of the parts of a story that I wrote called Most Likely Too. I call it a short story, but is actually an employer reference, recommending Kyle for admission to a highly regarded private school in the Midwest. He asked if I would write one of his recommendations as his employer, and I handed him a 12-page fictional surrealist short story that included profanity and adult themes. Now, To be fair, I actually wrote a more professional and more accurate recommendation, one that didn't require me to change any names to protect the innocents. There's a happy ending there. For us, perhaps to celebrate the American holiday called Labor Day, essentially a day off of work, here is a story about work, more or less. At least it's a story that emerged from the workplace. It's one of the stories that I refer to as being a neo-surrealist series, in that while one thing is going on, there's another another level of reality that creeps in. Sometimes it creeps in at the end as sort of a uh, a coup de theater, but in this case, it creeps in throughout. Uh, The subscript here, for most likely too, is a neo-surrealist writing a job recommendation. And at the very top, where you might see the return address, where if we think of a return address, you, you'll have like your name, your address, and your date. It simply says, you will not know my name. I have lived in many places. Time does not exist. And then on the other part of a formal business letter, where you might see the uh, address of the person to whom the letter is written, it just says, re, Kyle DeSmith, and to whom it may concern. Now, where do I know the name Kyle DeSmith? I ask. Work, Shoulder says. Oh, yeah, from the theater. He was that son of a bitch who wouldn't park his car in employee parking. No. Right, it wasn't employee parking. He kept double parking in the very front row. Have you talked to Mark about his car? Bob asked. Daily, sir, I'd hate to have to send this problem to the manager, but if, if, he, pushes me, if he pushes me much further, be patient. It's going to take these guys a little while to adapt to the style of a new assistant manager. So far, I've given him an option rather than an ultimatum. I told him he could park anywhere on our lot with his new Fiero as long as he used only one parking spot. That's a risky exception to make, Bob observed. Yes, but I'm banking that most of our crew won't be getting a new car from Daddy anytime soon. Plus, I would feel awful if anything happened to his car. I mean, this, this neighborhood isn't a garden spot. His other option? 
he can uh, only double park his car if he uses the very last row. Up against the fence? Right. I'm guessing he didn't take that very well. Actually, we got a laugh out of it, I said. He told me that he wouldn't have to double park at all if he, if he left his brand spanking new car all the way out there. I shook his hand, congratulated him, and told him that he was finally beginning to understand. On the serious side, let's make sure he doesn't lose sight of how unacceptable it would be for him to inconvenience customers when his car would be perfectly safe by the fence, Bob said. I do have another weapon, but Mark won't like it. What's that? I could dismay him by cluing him in on what a piece of shit the Fiero really is. I mean, he's not driving a Ferrari. Listen, Shoulder says. Wake up and listen. That guy at the theater was Mark. I'm talking about Kyle DeSmith. 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 Oh, from the fraternity house. He was that guy from Fayetteville, Arkansas, who swore we couldn't get him throwing up drunk. You're not listening to me, Shoulder insists. That's exactly what Glenn said. He says, guys, you're not listening to me. There ain't no alcohol been made. I can't drink and digest. Well, we took that as a challenge. I got a plan, Scott said. Since there aren't any parties this weekend, none to speak of anyway, let's, uh, let's spend all of Friday and, well, Saturday if necessary, with Glenn. First, we'll drag him to a wine and cheese party. A wine and cheese party? I asked. I can arrange one with Cynthia. Who? She's been pushing us for a small, I don't know, five to ten person get together since uh, rush week, I guess. She's a fine moo. Rattle, rattle, here come the cattle, I recited. Scott laughed. Will she arrange such a gathering on two days' notice, I ask? That's not the problem. The problem will be getting out of there in time for drown night at the question mark. Hey, when a beer don't mix, you know. Yeah, we're going to share that insight with Glenn. And if that's not enough... Leave it to me, Scott said, opening a cabinet in his room and pulling out a false shelf. Back here, you'll find enough quantities of gin, scotch, vodka, and tequila to make Jack Daniels himself dry heave. And if that's not enough? You really regard Glenn's bragging that highly? Scott asked. I nodded. All right, all right. Let me think. He pulled a near-empty pint of milk out of his mini-fridge. I know it's the wrong thing to do, and I know my conscience, if I had one, would either stop me or allow you to stop me, presuming, of course, that you had a conscience, too. But after two days in the liquor cabinet, I think this milk will be a perfect chaser for a straight shot of tequila. And I always thought lemon was a bit too bitter. Shoulder starts shaking his head. Apparently, either my story or my memory meets with his disapproval. A small man, Shoulder got the nickname for being and acting like the little man on my shoulder. He works in a manner that Scott would have described as a conscience, if Scott had any idea what a conscience actually was. The writing here is very poor, the editor observes. We are left wondering whether Shoulder knows these stories on his own or only through your persona's telling of them. For example, does Scott know Shoulder? My answer, yeah, yeah, they lived in the same fraternity house for three years, but I don't believe I could claim they ever knew each other. All right, so what happened to Kyle or Glenn or whatever his name was? It was 3.45 a.m., well past lights out. 
when Glenn fell off the top bunk of the bed. He missed hitting the desk by less than he ever wants to know. Nevertheless, he pissed his pants and immediately stumbled toward the shower. Scott and I were not in the habit of following other members into the showers. In this case, though, I went to get him. Scott and I were both convinced that Glenn would hurl in the stall. But, the editor asks, but he didn't. Instead, perhaps at the height of his drunkenness, this guy who had personally consumed two bottles of wine, half a keg, and 13 shots of mixed, and I do mean mixed, drinks, recognized our voices. Hey, guys, how the hell are you, hoss? Glenn said, looking at me. I hope you didn't have to beat that damn city slicker too senseless. Not knowing what to say, I nodded. Make sure you and little Joe there get all the horses rounded up. It's looking like there's a going to be a storm, he said, pointing towards Scott. Yep, Scott said, playing along. Help me out a little, buddy, I said to Glenn. Just exactly where are we? Are you so drunk you don't recognize your own home when you see it? Glenn asked. Look around. It's the Ponderosa. Oh, my God, I said to Scott. He's transported to an episode of Bonanza. And not like any episode you've seen, partner, Glenn interrupted. You see, I'm not too drunk to know three things. First, I didn't get sick. You thought I'd be forgetting about that, didn't you? And uh, uh, B, I think Cynthia's roommate really liked me. In fact, she wanted me bad. Glenn, Scott said gingerly, Cynthia doesn't have a roommate. But she does have a four-foot stuffed panda bear, I said, laughing. You could pork the stuffing out of her and she's never going to say no, Scott interjected. You guys are fucking with me. Oh, yeah, and that's number three. You guys have been fucking with me. Not sure what he meant. Scott and I looked uneasily toward each other. Glenn grabbed a broom from the bathroom closet and held it astride as though he were Moses leading us through the wilderness and asked, Thought I couldn't detect that cottage cheese, didn't you? Glenn, Scott replied, I swear to you, nobody gave you any cottage cheese tonight. The Fimu girls gave us cheddar, Swiss, even a little ricotta gouda mix, I added. But not cottage, Scott said. I'm not talking about the girls. I'm talking about you two. Fucking with me while I was taking shots. We stood silently and eased backwards toward the bathroom door. Glenn, mounting the broomstick like the Wicked Witch of Missouri Western University, cried, sue in pure Arkansas Razorback fashion. Then he started galloping naked around the bathroom. The last thing I heard as I ran to hide was Glenn's muffled voice, I belong on the Ponderosa, and you two belong in the cat house. <clears throat> Do you really think this will play in a family magazine? The editor asks. Hear me out, I reply. Nothing illegal happens. In fact, nothing immoral that hasn't already happened is going to happen either. With Glenn being my roommate, Scott and I ran to his room to hide. Was that a wise move? Shoulder asks. Shoulder, buddy, I answer. Glad you're back. Where'd you go? Nowhere. I was just ignoring you. Fair enough. No, Scott's room was a bad idea. And not just because it was the first place Glenn would look. 
Scott's brother was in town that weekend. Scumbag, not his real name, but the only thing anybody ever called him, was a 26-year-old college dropout who was, surprise, surprise, drunk beyond the ability to recognize faces or voices. We busted into Scott's room, breathing heavily and motioning left and right to find a hiding place. Scumbag, squinting at the sudden blast of light, said, I told you already, Trudy, I'm tired. I'm tired and I can't get it up anyway, and I've got a crash. With no time even to laugh, we turned out the light, slammed the door shut, and ducked into the trash closet across the hall. Glenn must have heard the noise. Soon enough, he was galloping in our direction, humming the tune to Gonna Fly Now, the theme from the Rocky movies. Gonna fly now. He sang with a cracking voice, flying high now. Scott and I held our breaths and listened. Glenn kicked open the door to Scott's bedroom, expecting to find either us or no one at all. Like Scumbag, Glenn was now too drunk to distinguish faces. Get up, you scumbag, Glenn said, choosing an ironic insult. What? What's going on? Who are you? Scumbag mumbled, believing Glenn was addressing him directly. Don't play dumb with me, Glenn answered. You tried to fuck with me, and now I'm going to fuck with you. Bend over, big boy, because Mr. Broom here is going to fuck you up the ass. Scumbag's eyes grew larger than his sockets. He saw Glenn's silhouette in the light from the hallway. He saw the broom. He heard the threat. And Scumbag, although perpetually drunk whenever he was in St. Joseph, was never too drunk to recognize danger. And here he sensed grave danger. Six feet deep in the grave danger. God, no, he yelled, begging for mercy. I don't know what I did. I don't know how I did it. Hell, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I did it. You got the wrong man. From there, Scumbag's words were impossible to decipher. He got off the floor before Glenn could move and scrambled back onto the bed, looking for a place to hide. When we found him later, Scumbag was sandwiched between the box springs and the mattress of Scott's bottom bunk. And Glenn, Shoulder asks. We found Glenn passed out in the bathroom, still naked, still clutching the broom. He still hadn't thrown up. So you lost the bet. No, I reply. Glenn didn't remember anything the next morning. So we made a deal with him. If he promised never to ask about the bet or to bring up his drinking prowess again, then Scott's brother wouldn't press charges. Charges for homosexual rape? Shoulder asks. No, nothing happened. It seems neither Glenn nor Scumbag could get it up, the editor quips, looking for a laugh. Our trick was to never tell Glenn what he did. Not knowing was a much bigger burden than living down the Ponderosa legacy ever would have been. Lovely story, Shoulder says. But what does that have to do with Kyle? Kyle, I repeat. Kyle DeSmith? He was never a roommate of mine. I've known that all along, Shoulder says. You are the one who has been confused. He didn't work for you at the movie theaters either. No, it was at Camelot. Camelot Music in Joplin. Correct. We hired him one Christmas, late in the game, so to speak. I told him Friday night around news time that he had the job. He was supposed to start at 7 a.m. the next morning to help us with a huge shipment delivery. Then, in a brilliant blunder, 
you overslept, Shoulder adds. Right, right. So in comes this new guy. Nobody knows him. Everybody is scrambling to start shipment. In addition to the sheer size of those December deliveries, they're also trying to overcome my tardiness. And then up, up walks this new hire to the gate, asking where the time clock is. Classic, Shoulder says. You know, sticking around through such an inauspicious start probably says a lot about Kyle's ability to make things happen. Suffice to say, he does not belong in any of your Ponderosa stories. Yeah, fair enough. So, what are we doing on behalf of this Kyle DeSmith from, uh, gosh, from uh, 2002-2003-2004, Shoulder Answers. Right, is this a job recommendation? No, I believe it's for college. Indeed, I say. That may explain all the college stories. Working my way through college, partying my way through college. It explains nothing, Shoulder blurts. Well, I respond, starting a defense and then dropping it. What should I say? While you were blathering on, I took some notes for you. Known him for more than a year. Worked for you for 14, no, now um, 15 months, with more to come, too. Don't mention the story about his first day. But I'd still play up his tenure, Shoulder adds. While 15 months isn't a record by Camelot standards, it is somewhat impressive for retail in general. What else, I asked. Right, Shoulder replies, flipping back through his notes. You'd better shovel some good BS about the job description and how it prepares people for the real world, etc., etc. Prepare a list. Handles pressure. Works hard. Maintains priorities. Able to finish multiple tasks at once. Oh, and don't forget the cliche about being a self-starter. Personnel guys just love that one. Good work, shoulder boy. Well, the editor helped. Frankly, we were both very bored by the movie theater story. Thanks for telling me. I'll take it out. Seems to me, the editor interrupts, that you are lacking any genuine sense of detail. What does this Kyle fellow do? From looking at your list, I lack any sense that I know him. More importantly, I lack any sense that you know him. Your credibility as a reference will be severely hampered if, I, if you can't demonstrate a more concrete familiarity with the subject. He's right, you know. No problem, I know enough. I'll just uh, you know, add a little bit about good grades, soccer and swimming, a general reference to extracurricular activities. That way we won't have to wait for Kyle to give us any, uh, any notes. Good call, says the editor. We wouldn't want your list to look exactly like his application form anyway. All you need is a big finale, Shoulder says. I've got it, I reply. Here, uh... Whenever I inquire about an applicant to a former employer, the most important question I ask is, would you hire this person again? My answer about Kyle is unequivocal. Yes. That's good enough, Shoulder says. Yes, the editor concurs, but I like it, but I'd leave out the quotation marks. Dialogue won't play well in a letter of recommendation. Do you really believe that dialogue will hurt his chances, I ask? Uh, not dialogue in general, he answers. Just yours. Sincerely, the author. 
impulse purchase. These are the episodes of the podcast Appetites. It's weekly mission to explore strange new utilities, to seek out the news and top-rated apps, to boldly go where no show has gone before. Do you like apps for your eye thingy? Do you? Hmm? Of course you do. We all do. Those wonderful little impulse purchases you just can't help buying. Well, as you've probably discovered, they're not all great. But with the help from my co-host Brad and myself, Tim, each week we'll help you make the right decision and help you avoid those clunkers. It's all going to be cool. So please come to appytimes.podbean.com or search us out on iTunes. I can promise you one thing, it's going to be awesome. I'm so there very soon. What band do I press? Okay, so was that just a crazy story about alcohol abuse on college campuses in the 1980s? Yeah, it could have been. Truth be known. But there's something inside that letter of recommendation plot line that I used as the thread to carry me through a lot of crazy stories. And again, you should have seen the look on Kyle's face when I handed him this document. And really, the the whole writing thing just flowed right out of me. Um, I knew these stories because some of those stories are are mild reinterpretations of things I actually witnessed. Names, dates, places changed to protect the innocent. But, you know, the look on his face, because he was expecting maybe a one-page letter, maybe a one-page letter sealed. You know, he probably had no expectation that he was going to be permitted to read it. You never know with those things. But in this case, I handed him something that was just a stapled, you know, stapled document. But you're talking about double digit in terms of the number of pages typed and double spaced. And, uh, you know, he's like, he had to be thinking, well, this clearly is not a letter of recommendation. I didn't leave him hanging. I didn't make him read the whole story before I gave him the, the real document that he was going to share with the college admission people. But boy, his, his, eyes, his eyes got really big. But there is something in this that I think from a Labor Day perspective is worth, worth talking about, worth planting a seed out there and saying, hey, we kind of have a big problem. And it, it may be just an American thing, but I would bet you that it's not. It probably is more of a, of a Western world sort of a thing. But in America, we've become such a litigious society that if you haven't noticed this already, you probably will soon enough. There's a trend out there, and it's been going on for, de- for more than a decade, in employment law that essentially says that as a, as a former employer of somebody, you're truthfully better off not answering any questions about that individual than you are telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I've worked in a couple of companies where, not the, obviously not the one that I described in the story, but I've worked for a couple of other companies where the standard company policy was, we don't give out any recommendations at all. We will not give a job recommendation for an individual. Uh, in some cases, you have sort of a, of a independent third party, like an agency that has some of the routine information about an employee, uh, information about their start date, their end date, the position that they held, the kind of things that a reference check truly needs to know. But anymore, you can't do a reference check on somebody and get the honest answer from the person that they worked for because it's too dangerous. If that university were to call me and ask me about Kyle and I were to tell them anything negative about him and truthfully – I had no problems with Kyle. He was a great guy. But if I'd had a problem with him and I had some negative things to say about him, uh, my company could have been sued. I could have been sued. And I would have been put in the very difficult spot of having to prove that anything negative I said was true. And the problem with defending yourself in court 
in America today, or even in America, you know, 15, 20 years ago, is that there's a cost involved in managing your own defense. If somebody takes you to court, even somewhat frivolously, you're going to be out the time and money that it takes to defend yourself against the claim. So anymore, all people have to do is to threaten to sue somebody, and the threat alone clamps down conversation, shuts down the free flow of information. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if, if you had a, a fantastic employee that you thought the world of, that you knew was exactly perfect to function in a great way in a new organization, and the person that he would work for calls you up and tells you a little bit about the job that this person wants to get and a little better maybe about the interview process and their sense of what this person might do in that organization. And you think, hey, yeah, Kyle would be perfect for that. He would be great. I'm not even allowed to say Kyle would be perfect for that because if I say Kyle would be perfect for that and three months later somebody calls me about another employee and I don't say the same thing about Billy or Bob or Sean or Kevin or whoever else it might be, now I could get in trouble with those guys. We actually had at the newspaper that I worked in and I don't know, you know, this is one of those things I, I haven't looked it up online. I haven't proven it. I'm not reporting this as fact. I'm just saying it was a rumor that was circulating the newsroom, that it actually was circulating the entire news organization across you know, all 50 states or all 35 states, however many states we had newspapers in, that was out there. So I believe the story has some truth to it, but I'm going to re- you know mention it now as an urban legend. But as the story goes... We as a newspaper organization actually got sued because we gave uh, a, an outgoing employee a great recommendation. The story goes, to, well, first ponder that. How could you get sued and actually have to settle out of court because you're in big trouble and you're going to lose the lawsuit for giving somebody a great recommendation? We'll look at it from this perspective. What if the employee was only barely competent? What if the employee was not only you know questionable in terms of their competence, but incredibly annoying? And when you get the phone call as the editor-in-chief to find out that this reporter who's been driving you nuts is interviewing and looking for another job, and you find out because the editor-in-chief of another newspaper wants to know um, whether this person works there, whether this person has been a consistent employee, what, what, what would you have to say? Do you, would you recommend this employee? Oh, it's awfully tempting to lie and say, oh, she's magnificent. She's one of the best reporters we've ever had. She's fantastic. I'm going to be sorry to lose her especially if you say it knowing it's a lie and that your own personnel records, you know, undercut your point of view that what you said over the phone is not reflected in that person's personnel reviews or in that person's productivity information. Now you've sent a quote unquote bad employee off to another organization and, and that other, that other newspaper sued us for giving a good recommendation to somebody who didn't deserve it. And all this sort of litigious nature around workplace employment issues just tends to make everybody sort of clam up. And now it's very hard for anybody to honestly praise or criticize any employee under any circumstances whatsoever that truthfully, I'm not, I'm not criticizing any organization I've, I've ever worked with for having a policy that says, listen, we just don't give that kind of information out. There's a number you can call to get hire date and fire date or that sort of information. We can tell you about somebody's, um, you know, start and stop times and the positions that they held, but you can't get any real information from anybody's supervisor about what kind of employee they were because that kind of honest information has become too risky. That's an interesting idea to have in our heads on this Labor Day weekend because it tells you something about the society that we live in now and, the, and sort of the workplace environments that we work in now 
versus what they were like 30, 40, 50 years ago. Something has changed. And in this case, I don't feel comfortable saying that it's changed for the better. We've made changes that are utilitarian and pragmatic, but not necessarily for the greater good. So what am I looking for? Am I looking for somebody who tells it like it is? Would I like to be in an environment where everyone in the office was a straight shooter and a straight talker? You know, there's a certain level where I really do feel that way. And today's different drummer certainly represents those character traits. Larry Wingett. Larry Wingett is an author, pundit, and speaker who has trademarked himself as the pit bull of personal development. He doesn't view himself as a motivational speaker at all. In fact, he calls himself the world's only irritational speaker, not motivational speaker. And if you've ever seen Larry Wingate, you'll know, you'll recall exactly what I'm talking about. And if you ever get a chance to see Larry Wingate live and in person, it is definitely worth the time. Wingate will make you think. He'll also make you laugh. An easy way for me to sort of describe what his in-your-face, straightforward, no-nonsense style is, is just by reading you the names of some of the books that he's written. Shut Up, Stop Whining, and Get a Life, A Kick-Butt Approach to a Better Life, from 2004. It's called Work for a Reason, Your Success is Your Own Damn Fault, from 2007. You're Broke Because You Want to Be, How to Stop Getting By and Start Getting Ahead, from 2008. People Are Idiots, and I Can Prove It, The Ten Ways You Are Sabotaging Your Life and How to Overcome Them, also from 2008. Your Kids Are Your Own Damn Fault, A Guide for Raising Responsible, Productive Adults, from 2009. It is exactly that style that makes Wingate simultaneously very entertaining, and also, I imagine, for some, quite annoying. I've got a, uh, looks like a postcard, about a postcard-shaped little uh, document that I picked up the first time I saw Wingate perform that has uh, his hand held out, sort of palm-facing out. And it basically says, everyone's looking for a pat on the back. If you want yours, put this card on the wall, turn around, and back up against it. There's your pat on the back. He's not a guy who believes that people necessarily need to be coddled along, that he kind of has an expectation that people do, that people should do what they said they would do when they said they would do it and in the, in the way they said they'd get it done. In other words, you make a promise, you keep it. He has another saying that basically says a deal is a deal, and that's his mentality. The other postcard that I picked up along the way is the 18, uh, is 18 Guiding Principles. And again, they're so simple. Take responsibility. Focus. Ask. Keep it simple. Love. Be flexible. Believe. Be prepared for the worst. Expect the best. Be thankful. Speak up. Lighten up. You've got to serve somebody. Those kind of concepts, you know, those kind of concepts are what, really what Larry Wingate's all about. Now, as you might imagine, this sort of no-nonsense approach really resonates on the conservative side of what we might call the political spectrum. But you know what? I don't have an issue with that, partly because I consider myself to be a moderate. I see things from both sides. I may land uh, on one end of the spectrum when it comes to garden variety social issues, but I tend to land on the other side of the spectrum when it comes to business issues, and I think almost anybody who's operated their own business or has been in charge of an organization 
tends to tends to side with the kind of logic that Larry Wingate expresses that you really don't have any time for nonsense. My uh, father, who I've I've mentioned before, was one of the one of the biggest no nonsense guys I've ever met. Uh, and I'm not going to say that Wingate reminds me of my father because their styles are very very different. But what they did have in common was this sense that you know what. We've got a problem. We've got to solve it. We don't have time to whine. We don't have time to blame people. Um, finger pointing never never got anything done. Let's use those same fingers, those same hands to get some heavy lifting done and, and clean up the mess. You know, um, my attitude, and again, I, I no doubt that it comes straight from my father, is that I'm not all that interested in whether the glass is half full or the glass is half empty if the part that's missing is staining my carpet. You know, the first thing you got to do is clean up the mess. Then you can obsess over whether or not the glass or what's left in the glass represents a half-full container or a half-empty container. To give you another sense, just from Larry Wingate's website, which is the very obvious uh, www.larrywingate.com, but from his blog, I'm just going to quickly read a few, uh, a few signs that you're a bad parent. So now, looking less to the business world, less to the financial world, and more inside the home and saying, you know, what are some what are some issues with parenting that, frankly, uh, a bit of the pit bull attitude might be helpful? Um, here's one. If you don't know where your child is right now, you're a bad parent. If your child has a television in, in his or her bedroom, you're a bad parent. Well, um, my wife and I, when we first got married, we had some arguments over this one because I sort of had in my mind that it was a very good idea not to have televisions in children's bedrooms. And that wasn't necessarily the... Um, the way that she was raised. So she had a kind of a different perspective on that. And we had to iron out, where do you want televisions to go? Where do you want computers to go? <clears throat> My attitude was a boombox, a stereo, a clock radio, CD players, those things in the bedroom, great idea. Televisions, you know, bad idea. And it's interesting that Larry Wingate agrees with me on this one. If you do not know your child's friends, you are a bad parent. Well, you know what? Be the first to raise my hand. There's a lot of things about my, my child's friends that I don't know. And sometimes I'm the, you know, the dad, typical dad. Who was that again? What was her name? I, I have trouble keeping track of the names and the faces and the places. But I at least know where my kids are, and I know who their friends are, even if I'm not all that good at remembering their names and connecting their names to their parents' names and all that other sort of stuff. But I can speak from authority. Going all the way back to high school, uh, the times when I was the most likely to get myself in trouble was when I was with people that my parents didn't know. So that's a good principle as well. If you tolerate disrespect from your child verbally or physically, you're a bad parent. If you promise consequences for either good behavior or bad behavior and then you don't deliver, you're a bad parent. If you don't teach your children about money, you're a bad parent. If you don't have open, honest communication with your child about sex, the dangers, consequences, and the joy of it, you're a bad parent. Uh, and he goes on from there. He offers an explanation at the end of his blog that says, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm spewing some things here that some people may find really objectionable. And I'm sure the answer that I'm going to get from people is, but Larry, I, I genuinely love my kids. His response, I'm sure you do. But we have to stop pretending that the definition of being a good parent is loving your child. Parenting is more than love. And, you know, it's that kind of rock-solid, dead serious, you may not like him, but he's going to make you think advice, that makes Larry Wingate a very interesting person, and in my mind, a different drummer. The one other word I'll offer on Larry Wingate is that he tends to be his own reader for his books on tape. And uh, I would say that an audiobook or a, a book on CD 
oftentimes I get a little bit worried if the book is being read by the author because you never know whether the skills that you have to have to be a capable reader are consistent with the skills you need to have to be a capable author. I might have actually demonstrated that paradox earlier in this show itself. So sometimes you're almost better off if you have a really talented reader who you know brings his own talents to the written word and let the author be the author and the speaker be the speaker. But in the case of Larry Wingate, it's not the case. In fact, for any of the books that I, I kind of rattled off the titles for earlier, if you had a chance to pick up those books and read them or pick up the audio version and listen to them, I would actually recommend the audio version because Larry Wingate, as a speaker, is that interesting. Again, at the very least... He's going to entertain. Somewhere along the way, and talking about religious beliefs and uh, you know the arts and the political process, I realized that things had gotten a little bit serious around here. Now, in inappropriate conversations, I'm going to tend to be more serious than your average than your average podcast. It's not my intention necessarily to entertain, but I hope this was a, a helpful change of pace. If you've got uh, any feedback you'd like to provide, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. And the website has comments enabled on Podbean at uh, inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.